I want to ask you to join me in Jeremiah 29, and I want to begin our time there uh, asking you to just begin to think about what 2017 holds for you, uh, what it is that you are praying for in 2017, what it is that, that you desire to see, because there's a sense in which I want to cast a vision for us as a church. I think we can get this, I think I can kind of dig through this, the most of this chapter in two weeks, but um, you know me, I don't say anything short. I can't say anything in less than a paragraph. Uh, and so it may take three weeks. We'll just see what happens. Um, but I, I want to, to kind of cast a vision as we read this scripture, maybe, maybe relearn some things that might have been taught to you wrongly out of this particular chapter of the Bible, and then begin to pray about what it will look like for us as a group of people to be set aside for God's purpose, a people that are for our city and that are for the hope of the gospel to transform our city. And there's a sense in which as I, as I begin to meditate through these things, I want to tell you there's um, people ask like how long did it take you to write that sermon or how many hours were you able to put toward preparing a sermon in a given week. And, and there's a sense in which I want to like show all my cards at the beginning. Uh, the answer to that, if you were to ask me like how long did it take you to prepare this sermon, there's a sense in which part of the answer would be like about 25 years. Um, there, there's some things here that, that may be overbaked. There may be some things that may be half-baked uh, as well, but like there's some things that you can tell, these have been kind of ruminating even in my own heart, and, and God has been shaping me in this in the last couple of decades. And I want to invite you in them with me as we walk through this particular passage together. I'm going to read the first 14 verses. We'll begin to dig through it together. So starting in verse 1 of Jeremiah 29, some of this will be familiar to you, but some of it I hope will not be, and maybe even reorient your own understanding to what you find to be familiar in this text. Verse 1, these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles, and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconia and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, the king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said... Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. 
And do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. If my voice will hold up, we'll make a run through this text. My hope is that God begins to speak to us as individuals, as family members, as friends. But I think there's a specific tone set in this passage for a group, for a corporate hearing, a corporate reading and a corporate hearing such that I believe this casts a vision for the life of our church. And this thing called Connection Church, whatever your relationship to it is, I I want to tell you what I believe the Bible declares that God's people ought to look like. So if you're here this morning, maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you wouldn't call yourself a believer. I'm really glad you're here. I want want you to be able to hear on the face of it what it is that those of us who call ourselves Christians, those of us who call ourselves the church, really believe that God has called us to be. I want you to kind of peer in, maybe eavesdrop on this conversation as we begin to look to an ancient and old text to think about what it is that the people of God ought to look like what the purpose of God ought to appear to be as it plays out in the world. So I want to walk us through some things that I think we find in this text. Some, at least a few different things. Maybe we'll boil them down maybe more than they ought to be. But I think we find we are, as this declares us to be, a few different things. We're going to dig through as many of them as we can today. The rest of them will wrap up tomorrow. Who knows? Maybe even take uh, the week after that. We are, I believe this text tells us, deserving of exile. We are sent by God. We are <laughs> where we are where we are for a reason. We are to fruitfully multiply the image of God, and we are called to patient, faithful presence. These are the things that this text begins to unpack for us, and I want us to, to walk through them piece by piece. And we'll wrap this up, I believe, next week. And so I began by asking you, what are you you praying for in 2017? Uh, What are you thinking about? What is it that you hope for? Sometimes the best way to uh, to think about that is like, what in 2016 do you not want to repeat? What are the things in 2016 that you want to bury and not see again anymore? And as we pray about these things, as as people all around the world begin to kind of celebrate a new year, we actually find that this is a biblical practice to begin to think about the passage of time. 
For when we do, when we think about the units and measure of time that we experience, it forces us to do something. It forces us to think about how God sees time, and it forces us to measure and weigh out our own time. It forces us to stop and think about where God has brought us, what's happened to us, and how much time we really have left. The psalmist prays with a deep, a deep sense of I would, maybe dark and, and somber relevance. Teach me to number my days. Why? That I might grow in wisdom. We're not afraid to talk about death. We're actually eager to. We're eager to think about the allotment of time that we have and the units of measure and passage of time allow us to do that. So this passage begins to tell us something and I've got to give you the kind of the rundown of where we are in the book of Jeremiah, where we are in the Old Testament, where we are in the story of God working through his people, so that you'll see what I think is a trend, uh, what you'll see is a pattern that we fall right into, that, that as the church of Jesus Christ, we're called to belong to. So in the grand scheme of the story of God's people, it starts at the beginning. We remember this. There's a we always go back to this. You'll always hear me reference back to the story of Genesis and, and the first people that existed. So I, I want you to begin to be more and more confident as you read the Scripture, such that when you find yourself in a place that, that the learning curve appears to be steep, if you'll just stick with it, per, persevere, you'll find yourself in a pattern. You'll find yourself in a, in a history that repeats itself. So I want to invite you. At one of the phrases that you hear over and over and over again, thus says the Lord declares the Lord, or thus declares the Lord. So as this year begins, I want to invite you. This is something I, I believe it's, it can be fruitful. Begin reading the Bible. Make a commitment. Read the Bible through in 2017. That seems daunting? Okay. Read the New Testament in 2017. All right? For some of you, that's exciting. But if that seems scary, okay, fine. Read something out of the Bible in the New Testament. Old Testament, anywhere in between. Why? Because we really believe something miraculous happens. We open the Bible and we're tapping into something ancient and old, and thus says the Lord. And we're tapping into something that God means to speak to us through. So uh, we talk about this one, a, a helpful, let's say, like a, a financial social prophet of our age is a guy by the name of Dave Ramsey. And and, and when talking about generosity and tithing to the church, it's, it's helpful because statistically, American Christians, not just Americans, but American Christians give less than 1% of their household income to the local church, okay? So he says that the best place to start is not 5, 10, or any, just how about not nothing? How about a, a disciplined and strategic and systematic approach to just not nothing? And so the best Bible reading plans are the ones where you just read not nothing, the worst Bible reading plans are the ones that you stop. So what I recommend to you every single year, get there's Google chronological Bible reading, any kind of Bible reading you want, and, and do something. Um, scratch off the dates. Don't just like just black them out. So that if just let's say if something comes up and you don't dig into thus says the Lord, thus, thus says the Lord, right? Just just what if? Then you're not overwhelmed with shame, but you mark that day off and go all right, I'm going to keep going. Right, so, th so that, that's where I would say let's begin. As we open the Bible and this story of the history of God's people that begins with Adam and Eve failing to do the one thing God expected of them, instead of abandoning them and forsaking them, 
God exiles them, sends them out of the perfect presence that he had given them in the garden, but doesn't give up on them. And that's kind of a recurring theme. I always tell you this, if I, if I was writing the Bible from the perspective of God as the creator, it would have lasted about three chapters. Um, and I made some people, and they messed up, and that was it. That was, well, let's not, let's not do that again. Wipe, wipe the slate clean. And yet the story of God and his people is like this repetition. They fail. He faithfully restores them. They're faithless. He faithfully redeems them. They rebel against him. He faithfully forgives them over and over. And, and, and it's, at any given moment, you kind of think, well, this is certainly the last straw. And yet we find out these simply set the stage for our own understanding of how God gives of himself over and over and over again. Forgives, redeems, restores his people over and over and over again. So that you and I would come to this text not with shame, but knowing I know that in God's mercy and his, slow, his slowness to anger, I've got at least another chance. So in the story, we find ourselves in Jeremiah about the 7th century. Uh, so it, we would argue that about seven centuries before Jesus came along, this is, this is where we find ourselves. Now, the last couple of weeks we've been in Isaiah chapter 9, which would have been about seven to 800 years before Jesus came along. And he prophesies that the people of God should not go into an agreement with Assyria. Remember, they should trust God, not the Assyrians, not the pagans. They should trust God. But you already know what happens, right? Didn't I tell you about this cycle? They don't. And one of the darkest days in the history of God's people begins. They make a pact with the Assyrians. The Assyrians turn on them. The Assyrians destroy them. And they have lordship over God's people until, if you know your history of civilization, what happens? The Babylonians come along. And the Babylonians come along and destroy the Assyrians. So if you have a map inside of your head of the Near East or Middle East, you'll see the Mediterranean Sea. And right on, right on the edge of it, we'll find ancient Palestine, Jerusalem, where Jesus lived, right? But if you go all the way across the Arabian Peninsula to the Persian Gulf, this is where the Babylonians came to destroy the Assyrians. And they took over. And they have a unique way of taking over. A very unique way. What they would come and they would do is that when, when they would conquer a place, they would begin to separate the people. They would take the most important people, the most skilled people, the most educated, the most influential people, and they would bring them into their good graces. They would win them over. Instead of oppressing them, they would win them over. They would put them in positions of influence. Now, you, you saw that in the text. Did you catch that? This is taking place after... This is says really nicely in verse 2, right? It says that the king, the queen, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, the metal workers, they had, did you catch that? Departed from Jerusalem, right? The word that scholars use to describe this is actually a deportation. They didn't depart Jerusalem. They were deported from Jerusalem. And the Babylonians would come and handpick, they would select the greatest people among them, and they would pull them back into Babylon and put them in situations of wealth, influence, and authority to win them over. Such that after a period of time, if they were to go back to their hometowns, they would go back singing the praises of their conquering king. Pretty brilliant. Now you should already know this. For those of you who are familiar 
with the story of Daniel. Happens at a kind of a similar place in a Babylonian empire. Who was Daniel friends with, right? Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they had, they had unique access to who? Do you remember it? The kings of Babylon, King Darius and King Nebuchadnezzar. How did they do this? Because the Babylonians were brilliant. And when they would take over, they would separate all of the gifted, influential, educated people. Now, this is the harsh part of, of the book of Daniel. Remember, remember how they selected Daniel and his friends? They picked the handsome ones, right? Now, the, an amazing thing happens in this type of exile. When you take all of the smart, educated, <laughs> literally, in the case of Daniel and his friends, all the smart, educated, good-looking, influential, wise people, and you take them out, you create a unique kind of culture, don't you? Because after all, what do, you, what do you do if you're not that? Like, what, what do you do if you're, you're left in Jerusalem and you're like, on one hand, that's awful, they took all the smart people, but even worse, I'm, I'm not one of them. And, and they were brilliant in this. They would take the craftsmen, the people who, who, had, who were tradesmen, who people who were extremely important in building a society, and they would draw them in to build Babylonian culture. And they would leave the rest of them to kind of fend for themselves. What an awful and terrible place to exist. That's what we're talking about here. That's the setting for Jeremiah. Jeremiah, often known as the weeping prophet, because he exists to speak God's word to people in what is, I would argue, the darkest day in the history of God's people. There's this downward decline, the mention of kings. Remember, last couple of weeks, Isaiah was speaking to King Ahaz. A couple generations later, mind you, these generations go fast. When, when you're not in a healthy kingdom, kings come and go pretty quickly. And we come to find out we're at the King Zedekiah. What you'll see for the rest of the Old Testament is that this is basically the last king of Judah mentioned. Do you know why? Because after this, there is no king. Only darkness. Only exile. This is as bad as it could possibly be. And yet God has sent excuse me, Jeremiah to speak words of truth to them. So here's where we find the setting. They're, they're in a difficult plot and a difficult place. And it's awful. And our first question would be like, how did things get so bad? How did things get to be so awful? How did things get to be so terrible? And in verse 4, we get the answer. And it isn't what you would expect. And it's deeply countercultural. It says, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exile, whom what? Whom I have sent. To all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. The first thing I want you to see here, the setting for this and the thing that I want us to give us a sense of identity as a people of God, existing for the purposes of God in Sioux Falls and in our city, would be to understand that we as a group of people deserve exile. We deserve it. In fact, what I would even argue here is that you can see that the consequences of sin are actually evidences of God's mercy and his grace, not evidences of his wrath. We see this in Romans chapter 1. Romans gives us like a theological treatise. It's, the, it's a very deep and amazing understanding and explanation of, of the gospel of Jesus Christ for us. And it begins by explaining the nature of sin. 
And the first thing that it tells us is that as people rebel against God, it says that God's response was to turn them over to their sinful desires. He let them go. Now, you can, you can illustrate this in many number of ways. The way I would say it is this, like, if I knew you were running into traffic and I knew you were going to run into certain death, how much would I have to hate you to let you go? At a certain point, I would, I would ask you to stop. At a certain point, I might yell at you. And that might seem mean, right? That would, he's screaming at me. He's telling me what to do. That might seem like what? Wrath. That might seem like anger. Stop it. No, don't. And at some point, get this, if I really loved you, I would tackle you. Now, I'm, I'm not that small. I might break your rib. I might harm you. And in that moment of being tackled at the side of the road, you might find yourself thinking, this Jonathan is a jerk. He must certainly hate me that he tackled me. And you'd miss that if I really hated you, if I really was angry at you, had real fury and spite toward you, I wouldn't tackle you. I'd sit back and watch you destroy yourself. It's actually love and mercy for a person to stop someone from harm. And it's actually God's mercy to send a person like Jeremiah to speak hard words of truth to these people. And it's actually God's mercy to allow them to be disciplined. Imagine the thought of this. The New Testament uh, plays this out differently as well and kind of repeats and, and quotes some of the Psalms to say that the Lord rebukes and reproves. The Lord disciplines those whom he loves. It's actually a sign of his own care to discipline the ones that he loves. It's actually his mercy to stop his people from wandering into certain doom and death. It's actually his grace to hold them back. And here's a miraculous and amazing thing to consider. It's actually his mercy to discipline his children and even to the extent that it's his mercy to send them into exile if it means teaching them a lesson. This is difficult because people don't like the thought of this. Uh, people don't like the thought of this. They don't. Our underlying assumption, the assumption that runs through, I would argue, your own heart and mind and, and, and mine, is that anytime something bad happens to someone else, they had it coming. And if something bad happens to you, it's unfair. But if something good happens to someone else, we feel envy and we think like, I deserve that. And if something good happens to you, you earned it. This, I really believe, this is a cultural norm. This is, this is the air we breathe in our culture. Is that if something bad happens to you, then that was unfair. It was unjust. And if something good happens to you, well, good job. You worked hard and you earned it. Have you heard this? This plays out in all sorts of different ways. The ways that this plays out in my own life is blame. If something bad happens, it is always someone's fault. Now, this is harsh because I've shared this with some of you, like uh, um, in the last few years that my daughters have, you know, they're now smarter than I am. Um, they'll do something and like something, like if something's broken or if like a, a baby doll's out of place or something, you'll hear some of this shout from throughout the house, you know, who did that? Who took my baby doll looking for someone to blame? And, I, and the first time I heard that, I thought, well, that's awful. That's awful. Who, 
who taught them that? Who demonstrated such blame? It was me. The way this played out the, the most vividly for me, um, as I look for people to blame, was in the first year of our marriage. The first year of our marriage was really rough. We were very prideful. Uh, we were just two sinful people that moved in together after we got married, and we thought, well, this is going to be great, but you put two sinful people together, just sin gets worse, right? You put criminals in the room together, it's organized crime. It doesn't, like, get better, okay? So this was the case, and, and you know, we were our typical prideful, resentful selves, and there's a few things that, that I, I have problems with, okay? Right? few things. First one would be wet socks, right? Like, if you spill something, and don't, like, if you make my socks wet, like, I, ah, I get angry. I just can't handle it. Huge pet peeve, okay? And right up there next to wet socks, this would be it, okay? You ready? This is going to seem petty, but just, you're going to agree with me, okay? Crumbs in the butter. Crumbs in the butter dish, you know what I'm talking about. And for those of you who aren't disgusted, you're the one I'm talking to right now, okay? <laughs> I, I swear to you, oh, crumbs in the butter. You know, you know what you're doing. You know who you are. And so in the first year of marriage, um, I go, to, I go to, to the refrigerator and I open up. And here's the other, like my brother and I used to fight over, I don't know if, you, it's not really butter. You know what I'm talking about. It's like margarine. And when they put it in, it has that swirl at the top, the little point. And my brother and I would, box and fight over who gets to cut out the little swirly thing in the middle. Um, and, and, and I say that because you'll know, you'll know if I've been in the butter first because I don't go to the side. I, go, I cut out that little thing because I used to fight for that. So I, I go to the grocery, uh, excuse me, I go to the, to the refrigerator, open it up, and, and I get some butter out to make some toast. And I open it up and there are crumbs in the butter. And so I'm, I'm, I'm off. Like this, I mean, you just you just, you just poke the bear. I mean, this is, this is about to get ugly. So, of course, what I shout through the apartment, who got crumbs in the butter? Right now, so at this point in time, we had no children. So that process of elimination is typically easy. Um, and when you say who did that, it, it is, you flip a coin and, you know, see, see who it is. And so I like, who did this? And she responded back something really interesting. It was really pretty powerful. At that time, my wife was was like doing away with kind of English muffins and toast. And so she wasn't eating like bread and stuff for breakfast. She was eating fruit. And so she responded back, maybe rightfully indignant, maybe with a little bit of sass. She's like, you're the only one who's used the butter. I don't eat bread in the morning anymore. And this amazing revelation came upon me. This, ama this amazing revelation, as I looked down into this butter dish, with crumbs inside it, and the marks that only I would make that had cut out the middle, I saw something amazing. Now, I think I saw what you see in this text. I think I saw, as I looked down into that butter, I saw the depths of darkness in my own soul. That actually, the awful things that happen, I deserved. The good things that happen in my life are a gift. And most of the awful things that have happened are things that I deserve. This is, I believe, one of the most important things to understanding the Old Testament, but it is the most important thing to understanding what we would call the gospel. The nature of God's goodness to us in Jesus is not that we deserved it, but that we deserved His wrath. By all... By 
all accounts, we deserve exile. We're there because we deserve it. And I know you're thinking, well, that's a harsh thing to say. That's a harsh thing to think about. But I want you to realize this, this is a powerful truth. This is an underlying layer that is incredibly important for us. God actually disciplines those whom he loves because they deserve it. You and I deserve hell for our rebellion against a perfect and holy God. We deserve hell. If I lie to you, no big deal. If I lie to a federal judge, it's perjury and I go to prison. If you sin before a perfect and holy God, we'll multiply that penalty times the matchless and infinite nature of his goodness. And now you begin to understand what you and I deserve. Before a righteous and perfect and holy God, you and I deserve to be sent away. I say this because if we're going to be a people of God who live for our city like this passage seems to paint for us. If we're going to be a people of God who love the people around us and love one another, we have to start with this assumption that it is only by God's grace that we're even here. I love how Joe opened our worship this morning in prayer. Like, we don't deserve it. Maybe you're angry about what you're going to see in 2017. We're lucky we even got to see the end of 2016. And the truth is, I can't guarantee that you or me will see 2018. I can't promise that. Now here's what this doesn't mean. This doesn't mean that if the people around you have something awful happen to you, happen to them, we don't say, well, you had that coming, all right? That's, don't he- hear me clearly. That is not what we do. We don't go and say, like, well, you had that coming. And this is interesting because there are other people who call themselves Christians who do this. Um, and they, they, they actually take great joy in these moments where they can go, that bad thing happened to you? Look at what you did wrong. You had that coming. That, that is not what we do. But instead, we, regardless of where we are, humbly begin to consider what we actually deserve. And in gratitude, receive the gifts that we do not. This is radical, isn't it? This means that regardless of your circumstance, you don't immediately look for someone to blame. You look for opportunities to confess your own failures. And this is the radical nature of the cross, is it not? I know what you're thinking right now. Well, sir, surely he's talking about someone else. And right now, you can probably think of three people you wish were here listening to this sermon, right? And you're like, I wish they were here. They need to hear this because they're awful. But there's this beautiful thing that the cross does. It outs us for who we really are. The cross on public display says that a perfect God had to die to fix what was broken in you. A perfect and loving God had to send His perfect and righteous Son to take the place for your mistakes. And if any Christian begins to think like, well, certainly I deserve the good things that happen to me. The cross is a constant and powerful reminder that that's a lie. That in fact, exile is what we deserve. In fact, when we looked at the cross, we see exactly what you and I deserve. There's no Christian who says that they don't deserve punishment. In fact, 1 John says this, right? If anyone claims to be without sin, what? He's a liar. Right? So, if, so if you're like, well, I, I'm, I'm not. I'm not that bad. Well, John says you're a liar, and that makes you a sinner, and therefore even twice as bad. Right? So like, 
If you think that you're without sin, then you're, you above all are missing the truth here, and you're going to miss the good news of Jesus. That's important because when we go to a, a world that is lost and in darkness, and we say, Jesus loves you, there's a sense in which if we don't humbly present ourselves as sinners in need of God's grace, then there won't be anything to undermine the underlying assumption that they deserve God's love. Right, we sing Jesus loves me. You teach those to the children, right? Jesus loves me, this I know. But our culture kind of is okay with that and it says like, well, Jesus loves me, this I know because I'm awesome. And when you come along and say Jesus loves me, there's a sense in which most people go like, of course he does. Why wouldn't he? Why wouldn't Jesus love me? And therein lies a powerful and amazing miscue that if you don't understand what you don't deserve, then you'll never appreciate or understand what you do. And for a world that thinks that all the good things that have happened are things that they have earned and deserve and all the bad things are a mistake and injustice and unfair and need to be corrected by some measure, this is a radical way to live, isn't it? To, as these people would begin to do, say, I'm in this mess, but I'm in this mess because God put me here. And I'm in this mess not because God is angry or going to destroy me. I'm in this mess because he loves me and he's teaching me something. Can you imagine this? Like, when we talk about the, the deserving nature of punishment, it, it's, this is one of the easiest things to prove, right? Uh, this is one of the easiest things that I have the most evidence. We call it depravity. And it's one of the easiest things to prove in our culture, right? Like, oh, no, we're really good people. Are we? Like, yeah, we're really smart. We're really great. Yeah, what, what, what have we done with all that smartness and all that greatness? There's this thing called a nuclear bomb, right? It's nuclear power. It's, ama it's an amazing invention. And we don't use it to, like, power cities. We don't use it to do all these amazing things that it could do. What do we do? We, we put them special little projectiles and use it to kill people. Tell me about how we're good people again. Tell me about how down deep we really want what's good. This is important for us in our culture. In a, anytime you live in a republic or a democracy, right, there's this basic assumption in democracy that there's a public morality. Right? If you put people to govern themselves, if they're good, they'll do good things. What happens if you put corrupt people in power? Oh, I don't know. Watch the news lately? Do you get this? Like, like there's this basic assumption that shocks our culture. Oh my goodness, people did bad things. I can't believe it. And we're the people who come along and go, yeah, that's, I don't, I don't, know, if you've, I don't know if you've read the history of, of us, but that's, that's kind of our thing. Like bad things. That's really what we're good at. In fact, we're, we're, we're like excellent at it. We've had thousands of years of practice at being this. Here's what I want to begin to compel you to think about. As we pray for what it looks like for us to be a church in our city what would it look like to be a people humbly set apart as ones who are eager to confess our failure? What would it look like to be a people that knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that we deserve hell and everything else is a gift? Wouldn't that change the way you interact with people? Wouldn't that change the way you interact with people that maybe don't treat you like, like you feel entitled to be treated? If they treated you badly, wouldn't it radically alter the way you react to them and respond to them? Instead of defensively and pridefully fighting back and destroying them going, yeah, I probably had that coming. I, I, there, some measure, I probably deserved that. You know, I, I deserve hell. I'm lucky I even got this. Wouldn't that radically change the way we existed? 
You see, I think there's at least three different perspectives, I would argue, that, that the modern church, at least the American church, has taken with respect to its context, its culture, its city, right? It's, it's I would say, the nature of apathy, animosity, or, or just straight-up friendship. And so people are either against the culture, they're apathetic of the culture, or they worship and want to fit into the culture. Have you seen this? So there's the, there's the group of people that they believe since they've been called by God, their, their role is to be against the culture. Did you catch what the people of God are called to be here? It says they're to exist for the well-being or the welfare of their city. You know that word. That word translated welfare is the word shalom. It's something we celebrated the last couple of weeks. That we celebrate a Savior that's come to be what? A wonderful counselor. Our mighty God our everlasting Father, our Prince of Shalom, our Prince of universal wellness. This is who we are shaped by. This is who we are changed by. We don't exist to, do, to, to be at animosity or at odds with the people whom we know who are living in darkness. We exist to bless them, love them, and care for them, just like Jesus. The second approach would be, uh, if not animosity, is just apathy. Kind of just like, well, we exist for our own. It's, it's, they're a, a both a subtle form of pride. They just play out in different ways. One of them is, I'm better than you, and so I'm going, to, I'm going to tell you. And the other one is, I'm better than you, and so therefore I'm just going to stay away from you. Now, I would argue one, you probably fit into one or two of these categories, right? In conflict, you either like run in guns blazing, or you're just like, is it, I'm out. Is it even worth it? Right? And so it, it makes perfect sense that the local church made up of believers being transformed by the gospel would err in forms of idolatry on one side or the other. Either they're like, no, I'm going to tell you, or they're going to be like, you know what, let's just leave them alone, right? This is the group of people that are really excited about, about just like telling people where they're wrong. They're the people who are excited to tell people about how sinful they are. They're, like, they're joyfully like telling people like you're going to hell and they're not like oh they're not like ow oh, i can't believe you're going to hell it's like you're going to hell <laughs> right you, you seen this seen this animosity this this character and then there's the other side this is the side the the withdrawal this is like people who who more than anything just love christian events you in this one like they love christian sports church league softball church league basketball right and they think that like if they just get the world out they'll be good Newsflash, the most ungodly things I've ever seen happen in my entire life happened in church league basketball slash softball. You want to see a fight break out, don't go to the beer league. <laughs> go to the church league, right? So, and both of them are a form of pride that manifests themselves in destructive ways. Have you seen this? Rather than doing the things that we do for the people that we are called to declare the gospel to, we, we either like in animosity push against them or in prideful withdrawal, separate ourselves from them. The third failure, I would argue, is like th the most recent is the, I don't know, it's like the church that wants to buddy-buddy with the culture. They actually exalt the culture. In fact, if, if, they, if they had one picture of hell, it would be for them to not fit in. If people in the city didn't like them, if they found out that they believed strange things, like a dead man was once dead, and on Easter Sunday, he's not dead anymore. They're like, whoa, whoa, whoa let's just we'll take it easy. Have you seen this? This culture is all, it's, it, this picture of the church is all about just winning over and, and like belonging to the culture, such that the truth of the gospel, the truth of Jesus, becomes 
hard to see. You see this picture in Revelation chapter 2, right? The church at Ephesus, their, their problem was what? They'd forgotten their first love. They forgot Jesus. They did good stuff, but they forgot to point towards Jesus. And what I think you see here is a powerful picture of what the people of God begin to look like in the culture to which they've been sent. They're the people who are humble. We're the people who, when we recognize and see our own failure, we're quick to confess it. Why? Because we sing some other mystery that Jesus paid it all. We're eager to confess our own failure. Why? Because we believe that it's been paid for. It's been covered. We don't hide our sin. We don't have to hide our failure. We don't have to hide the fact that we deserve punishment and exile. We can embrace it because we know that Jesus ultimately endured it on our behalf and has given us the blessing instead. This is who we are. We're the people of the cross. And if anyone ever begins to believe that they are without failure and without sin, we point towards the cross and we go, yeah? Well, then why did that have to happen? My first prayer is that we would become a people who humbly begin to understand that we deserve exile. I said more than one time that God had sent them into exile. And not with anger, not with animosity, but that we would look at our relationship to our culture and realize that, man, we're, we got it good. We have it really good. It's not gloom and doom, regardless of what anyone says. At any given moment, newsflash, again, in our culture for the next couple of decades, politically speaking, at least half the people in our country are going to think that the world's coming to an end, and at least half the people are going to think that they're living in the promised land. It's just where we are. And both of them are wrong. The promised land is to come. And we have this powerful peace rooted in a God that has put us in a culture that sometimes is good, sometimes is bad. And in the end, it's the place that God has, placed, has put us for a reason. God has done this, and he's called us to be fruitful in this. So here's where I'll land, and then I, I, want us to, I want us to just begin to obediently do the things that it tells us to do, to fruitfully multiply, to fruitfully thrive in our city. But if you notice, it says that we ought to seek the welfare in verse 7 and then pray to the Lord on its behalf. And so in a moment here, that's where I want to land. I want us just to have an extended time where we begin to pray for our city. But before I can do that, you have to begin to realize, you have to hear this good news. You don't deserve the breath in your lungs. You don't deserve it. And if that isn't something that we begin to embrace with a great deal of humility and sobriety, then we will miss our purpose in our city. We'll miss it. We'll either pridefully shout out that we know better, I've said this often to you, like most, most people who call themselves Christians are actually more excited about being right about Jesus than they are in being excited about following Jesus. They're much more excited about proving people right about Jesus than they are about following Jesus, and laying down their lives. That's a prideful animosity. Or we'll have a prideful withdrawal, and you'll just honestly, you'll, you'll just look to hang out with Christians. And you'll find that the only people on your cell phone are people that already look, talk, act, and think, and believe like you. But unless we humbly believe that we are amongst a people that deserves punishment 
and yet still called to a purpose in our city, then we won't ever see the fruit of it. And I want you to really believe this. You have a divine purpose and appointment. You have a divine purpose and appointment. Now, verse 11 is the crescendo we'll talk about next week, but you've probably seen it on a coffee cup, right? Probably seen it like crocheted on, on, a, on a wall somewhere. If you're like deep culture, it's like a, it's probably on some coffee table somewhere. Like deep Christian culture, this is what this looks like. And, and everyone memorizes, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And, and that's something that gets spun off into all sorts of different ways and, and, and gets eventually sold to people as like, nothing bad is going to happen to you. God has plans for your prosperity, but it doesn't involve suffering. Again, the problem with that is the cross. God has plans for us, but it might in fact involve suffering as a key ingredient. If Jesus sets any example for us, then we know that suffering will be involved. It's not that the plans that God has for our welfare, namely our shalom, are void of suffering. It's that God is doing something that's greater than the suffering. It's actually grander than the things that are awful. Such that these people are told by God that they're in a mess. They see the consequences of their own rebellion and the exile to Babylon. But God's purposes for them are not thwarted by it. In fact, they will be the backdrop through which God begins to do something amazing. And I can say with confidence, if that's the case, then friend, you have a divine purpose. You have a divine appointment. You are where you are for a reason. This means that some of the, uh, uh, some of the really interesting kinds of, uh, I'll, I'll call them like New Year's resolutions, some of them are actually quite biblical according to this. Did you catch this? There's a time allotted to them. You got 70 years. And then I'm going to restore your people. If, if they'll obey me, allow me to call them back to myself, you got 70 years. Okay, that sounds about right. You'd probably be happy if you made it 70 years. There's a sense in which like, even some of the good, um, good New Year's resolutions have biblical basis. So here's what I think you can, you can say with a great deal of confidence in the new year. You should give up on a few things. You should give up on unhealthy living, on unhealthy lifestyle. You should think seriously about what you eat and think seriously about your physical exercise, your physical fitness, as far as you can control it, right? Oh yeah, you can do it pridefully to see what you look like in the mirror, or you can realize that we've only got so many years here. I've only got 70 years to be the person God's called me to be. I only get one life, one body. I had better take this seriously. Death is coming for me. Right, like pain and suffering are coming from all parts of my body. I don't know, I get hurt just sleeping wrong in bed, right? Any of you at this? What did you do? Did you lift weights? No, apparently I rolled over wrong, right? <laughs> like, so this, this is real, isn't it? Now, you can, you can join our culture and like join a club just to, I don't know, look cooler and, and make yourself feel better because you compare your, your body fat or body mass to everyone else. Or you can radically submit what God has given you, your own health, you can submit it to God's purpose here and, here and now in our city. Because if, if this is a divine appointment, whew, you better be careful. If God's got a divine purpose for you, 
well, you better take care of the tools he's giving you. You can give up on unhealthy living. You can also give up on like short-term kinds of in-the-moment success. You can begin to plot a course. Like, look, we're in this for the long haul. We're going to be here for a while, at least 70 years. Won't that change the way you experience success and failure? If you know, look, God's doing something here. It's going to get worse before it gets better. God's not going to abandon us, but God's going to restore us. And he's going to do something miraculous so that he will get the glory for it. Won't that change the way you understand your own sense of success and failure? Won't that kind of calm you down and prevent you from being overconfident from the good things that are happening? And won't that begin to encourage you amidst the awful things that are happening? You can give up on having small pictures of your own life. You can give up on excuses. Begin to take ownership and responsibility with humility. Instead of always looking for an excuse, always blaming someone else, you can say, look, I'm here. It's by God's grace that he sent me where I am. I deserve hell. (laughs) Every breath I get from here on out is a gift. We can give up on a sense of entitlement. We can give up on a sense that we deserve everything that's perfect. We can give up on a sense of multitasking. God hasn't put you in Sioux Falls to do a whole bunch of things. Apparently, he has put you in Sioux Falls to do one thing, and that is fruitfully multiply, to fulfill the promise he gave in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and Revelation chapter 20, that one day the nations will display the glory of God. The image of God will be born perfectly. The enemy will be destroyed. You can give up on everything else that will distract you from that. You can give up on your need to control everything. You can begin to say no to things that don't support God's calling on your life. So I want to begin, as we kind of wrap up, a time of brief prayer and give you kind of a list of things to pray for today and in the days to come, and we'll just obediently pray. The first one is this. Literally, what we're called to do here is let's pray for our city. Let's pray for our city. Let's pray for those who are living in darkness and living outside of hope. Let's pray for the divine appointments that God has put in your life and mine. Let's pray that we would begin to believe that we really are here and it's not an accident. Is it possible that you're not on your way to somewhere else? Is it possible that your plans are wrong, his are right, and you're right where he wants you to be? You'll either use your city and essentially believe that it exists for your benefit, or you'll believe that God's placed you there to bless it. So let's begin to pray. As we begin to bow our heads, let's, let's begin to ask God some of these things. Would, in your own words, in your own, uh, in your own understanding of who God is, would you just begin where you are? Would you, in your own words, quietly ask God to bless our city? Would you just begin to ask God to move in a powerful way in our city. Would you begin to ask God to call to your attention and and even to your own mind the people and places that are hurting around us? Would you ask God to give you a consciousness of brokenness and sorrow? 
would you begin to pray uh, in your own words? Would you just ask God that he would give you a sense of calling and divine purpose, that he would give you divine appointments and reminders that you are not here where you are by accident? Would you begin to, in your own words, ask God that he would encourage you by giving you a clear awareness of your purpose in your family, in your workplace, amongst your peers, in your neighborhood? If you've got doubts, uh, if you've got just a deep sense of shame and, uh, and guilt, in a sense that like, you regret everything that's ever happened to you and, and you think you're here and it's just it's the worst, would, would, you, would you begin to just confess that to God and ask him in your own words to begin to replace that sense of resentment and regret with a sense of gratitude? An amazing thing is going to happen for us to, to be thankful for things as we believe we don't deserve them. Would you begin to pray that God would stir up in you a sense of, of thankfulness and gratitude? And now, would you, would you pray for our church? We've got some amazing things happening in and through the life of our church um, and, some, and some big decisions with respect to location, uh, big decisions with respect to the way we begin to ordain deacons, elders, as we begin to train gospel community leaders. All of these things are on our docket and on our plate. Would you, would you just pray for our church that we would not see ourselves as entitled to any of these things, but would, would you just pray for a sense of gratitude for what God's doing and a sense of vision and calling and divine purpose and divine appointment for what he's going to do? And lastly, I want to ask you to pray for something specific, something small, something measurable. Would you ask God that he would give you one person, maybe many, but at least one person, one person that if we're going to live like Jeremiah calls us to live, that we would multiply blessing, multiply grace, and multiply joy. Would you... Would you think of just one person? Ask God to plant on you one person that in 2017 you're going to encourage. Maybe it's a person that you're going to disciple and begin to lead toward Christ-likeness. Uh, maybe it's a person that you're just going to have to look for opportunities to win them over such that when you begin to demonstrate gospel fruitfulness, they'll have ears to hear it. Would you pray for that one person? Just Maybe you already have that person. Um, or maybe you just need to have your eyes opened. Maybe you've been withdrawing. Would you ask God that he would just, maybe, maybe he'd give you a ton, but like at least one person that you'll begin even today to pray for, to think about. And when we pray for the city we live in, we won't just pray nebulously and abstractly for a bunch of people, but when we pray for our city, we'll think of that one person that God has placed in our lives, the person that we've been sent to speak, thus declares the Lord.
Would you just picture that person? Would you pray for them? Would you begin to see them that uh, they're in exile? They're like us in a place they don't want to be. But we declare a coming king, a king that gives mercy. God, we thank you for what you've called us to be and to do. Uh, We thank you that you've instated uh, a vision for your people and your purposes in the world. Uh, We don't have to conjure up something new. Uh, We don't have to, by our own creativity, come up with something innovative. Instead, simply we need to see you for who you are and make the world see how glorious you are. If there's some in this room that that just seems like uh, and it, that just seems like craziness. Would you begin to humble them and show them your mercy? Show them that we are, we are broken sinners in need of grace. We have, we have, because of the cross, we have no right to look down on anyone. There's not a single one of us that can look at someone else's sin and look at their decisions and say that they somehow deserve worse than we do. Would you begin to for those of us in this room who, who find that difficult to believe, begin to so, like build up in us a gratitude for the gospel because of an, we have an awareness of how much we really don't deserve it. Give us a sense that when we say Jesus loves me, this I know, we're saying something that's utter, utterly radical, it's utterly counterintuitive. We, we deserve terrible things. But in Jesus Christ, we receive a victory over death and sin. Change us now by these things you show us. Give us a faithfulness as we declare the gospel together. In Jesus' name, amen.